and Buzz Eisenberg on WHMP. And welcome to Talk to Talk. I am Buzz Eisenberg. Bill Newman is involved right now with watching the Supreme Judicial Court arguments on Graham versus Hamden County District Attorney, a case which we'll talk about uh, at a later uh, time or date. Maybe we'll get to that today. But um, today is our monthly visit, which I cherish. I know so many do with uh, Senator Joe Comerford of the uh, Hampshire, Franklin and Worcester District. Um, Joe, you represent uh, 25 municipalities, I think about 175,000 people. Um, you are a busy senator. <laughs> I wanted to open with this. I think I just read that here in Western Massachusetts, we're about 22% above the normal uh, rainfall, which we get in uh, in a year. And we're already almost a quarter above what we get in a total year with almost three and a half months to go in the year. Um, kind of startling. But yesterday there was... Uh, a, uh, I think, somewhat important, a solar forum session that you co-sponsored um, at the university um, to talk about uh, about what we could do, some of the things that we might do to uh, stabilize our climate. So, hello, uh, Joe Comerford, and could you talk about that? So, thank you so much for the interest in this. Uh, and you're right, Buzz, you know, what happened to us in July, what happened out east in August, what happened in Lemonster. Oh, God, help Oh, my us. goodness. Um, recently, right? There is no, absolutely no mistaking that the climate crisis is upon us. Um, and all of us who are awake and paying attention, like you are, like so many of your listeners are, you know, we must see this for what it is. Uh, and we must proceed as urgently as possible. And, and this is a big and, and the road ahead is complex. I will say that the Healy-Driscoll administration has given me oh so many reasons to be hopeful um, because of, uh, you know, it, the people it appointed, like Climate Chief Melissa Hoffer, uh, EEA Secretary Rebecca Tepper, their great teams uh, who have, you know, come in and sprinted um, implementing the very necessary roadmap ahead. Um, but there isn't anything simple about the work they're going to do as capable as they are. And, and one of the areas, you know, where, where we are ground zero uh, in this clean energy revolution that must come is around solar. Um, you know, I, I believe you and I, I think many of us, you know, are, we cherish solar, right? We want to put a bow on it. Um, although we're often called NIMBYs in Boston. Uh, I have been called a NIMBY, which I think is uh, sort of a lunatic fringe statement. But I, For those I, who don't I, know, that's my, uh, not in my backyard. Not in my backyard. Right. I've told my colleagues in Boston, um, oh, my God, we love solar in western Massachusetts. We'll direct people off the highway to see it. We'll put a bow on it. But we want the state to engage, deeply engage, in a needed conversation about the trade-offs around solar. We know to get to 2050 and become a net zero state, we need to increase carbon sequestration. You know who sinks the carbon for the Commonwealth? We do mm. in Western Massachusetts. And we need 5% more than we have right now. So if we cut down a tree, we go backwards. And I want to have that conversation. I, I think it's 
pretty obvious that I really favor solar on the built environment or disturbed land. Um, many do in Western Mass. Uh, but, you know, I'm also a person that recognizes that we need solar in order to get to be a net zero commonwealth by 2050. And our future, our children's future, um, and our certainly our grandchildren's future depend on Massachusetts taking the climate crisis seriously. Uh, so, you know, God bless the UMass Clean Energy Extension folks who, um, when Rep. Dom, Rep. Mindy Dom and I approached them with this idea, said, sure. And although I'm quite sure they had no idea what they were getting into. Um, <laughs> and they have put together a four-part series that is absolutely expert. Um, they have gotten some of the best minds in solar policy uh, in the Commonwealth, some in the nation. And we are having really nuanced discussions on everything from equity to, you know, how to bring the best community benefit to land use and carbon sequestration to industry. You know, what industry thinks. We had a really pretty intense conversation yesterday and hundreds of people are turning out. Um, so it's the place to be on Tuesday afternoons uh, for three to four hours if you can do it. Uh, but we're also taping it. It's also translated into Spanish. There's ASL interpretation. Really, quite extraordinary. I think it is pretty extraordinary, Senator Joe Comerford. But I want to ask you. I mean, some. You're right. It falls on each one of us. It falls on every business, and it falls on every municipality. There are things we could do with bylaws and ordinances, and just changing our habits. But in terms of solar, what role as a legislator do you think the uh, the legislature should be? Taking should there be what kind of state laws, what kind of regulations have to be passed in order to induce to allow us to grease the path for us to become more reliant on solar and less reliant on fossil fuels? Really good question. Um, so, as you started to talk about this, this is the intersection solar policy, like wind policy, you know, like hydropower, um, like geothermal, um, is at the intersection of federal, state and local, both laws, bylaws, um, ordinances, and regulation, right? So if you think about it, um, this is an image that comes to me a lot of the time. Uh, if you think about spaghetti that's been in a strainer for like 10 minutes too long, and it's begun to stick together, um, that is currently um, the conversation around solar, which is why a forum like this is so important. Because just as you use the, the word grease, right? We have to untangle these threads. We have to see them for what they are. We have to see who uh, is affected by all of these decisions. We have to think through this emergent lens of equity um, and um, really understand um, what is an equitable footprint for solar. Um, so what the legislature can do, um, so at the state level, clearly we appropriate funds uh, for things like solar incentives on the built environment. Clearly, we can pass laws. I have a bill before the legislature. It's a pretty simple bill. I got the idea. My team and I got the idea from friends and actually numbers of states that simply say, if you have a big, if you have a big parking lot, you actually have to put solar on it, and we're going to give you some money to do it. Um, so uh, we, we can and should set some frameworks and some parameters and, um, and, and values that the legislature has. Um, and then we really do have to work with our colleagues in government. And here it's everyone from the Mass Department of Agriculture Resources 
uh, you know, talking about farmland, to the energy and environment folks, uh, to the fish and game folks, um, and everyone in between to figure out, you know, the right roadmap, the right balance to get us to the right equation. Um, and, you know, and that is everything from, you know, weaning us off of fossil fuels, which we absolutely must do, and then increasing significantly um, wind, solar, and especially geothermal. Um, and in the same moment, we have to build the grid um, that's going to carry this, and we have to build the battery storage um, that's going to hold it, right? Because the sun doesn't shine all the time, the wind doesn't blow all the time. And so all of these things have to happen at the same moment. Um, and if I could just talk for one more second, a super cool thing that's happening right now, um, and it's something that Rep. Blay and I, Rep. Natalie Blay and I, were part of along with the Acadia Center, is we passed the first ever in the nation um, basically a grid modernization advisory board. And this is to my last point about, you know, we have to you know, bring in this whole new industry um, and figure out how to do it equitably while caring for our land, our open land. Um, and we have to figure out how the heck we're going to get a grid that was really created 100 years ago um, to actually have enough nimbleness and capacity um, and enough uh multi-directional oper- you know, opportunities to, um, to carry this energy. And but by grid, you mean our, ele- our electrical grid? That provides our electrical us- grid. Right. Um, and so we have a, we've just stood up, um, thanks to law that we passed you know, about, about a year ago, there's a grid modernization advisory board full of residents and experts in the Commonwealth, not tied to industry, looking at all of industry's plans. And they will have the power and ability to critique them and actually offer feedback to the administration. So we, we have to set up these kinds of safeguards, you know, resident safeguards, so that we know that the work we are doing, you know, works in the short term. But really, again, thinking much longer term, we have to make sure it works for generations to come. It is just so smart and forward looking. And uh, we're so great. Unlike what's going on in Congress, we have a legislature that's actually thinking about how to help us, how to help our planet. If uh, Before I move on to the next topic, um, for those of us like me who's got this dreadful image of clumped spaghetti in our brains, um, how, do they, uh, how can they watch um, or listen to the Solar Forum session? Well, so we're sharing it via our social media um, and... Uh, so if you're on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, um, we're sending it out. I'll also put it, it'll be a sort of a star of a newsletter I'll be sending out so people receive our newsletter. It'll be on our website, um, SenatorJoeComerford.org, as soon as we get all the recordings. You know, it's, I, I will have to say that, you know, even though it's, sometimes it's like super wonky um, what's getting talked about, yesterday I was riveted. You know, like an '80s soap opera. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I just I couldn't believe what I was hearing. And the first one, you know, both the first and the second. So we'll have you know three and four coming up in September. But the first one was like off the charts. Buzz. These were big thinkers, right? The secretaries, the climate chief, their undersecretaries, um, the commissioner of DOER. Like 
these were the big thinkers working right now. All of them are women. I just want to put a little plug in. And they were talking these new ideas, talking about these new ideas um, that I hadn't heard. Right? They're talking to each other about needing to conserve land. They don't want to take Western Mass forests and chew them up on solar. And then yesterday we had all these scientists in who were studying land loss um, and the impact on farms and farming uh, from solar. And they are, you know, they, they are also sending up flares like, hey, we want solar and let's do it much smarter. Um, and the administration just released a report about the value of agriculture land to help us get a sort of divining rod um, and help work with farmers uh, who actually need to make a buck sometimes. But perhaps we can ask them or work with them and the state through incentives to take the least advantageous land um, and put it uh, if they want to under dual use or in a solar array. Again, this is uncharted territory, but what I can tell you with absolute confidence is that uh, thanks to UMass Extension, and these are smart, good people, thanks to the administration, and thanks to the, you know, the folks in the legislature who were tuned in on this, um, we, are, we are charting a different path than this Commonwealth has seen before. And it's so uplifting because those of us who first heard 2050 as a net zero uh, goal uh, and thought, hmm, that seems a little unrealistic. It's people, it's initiatives like this, people like you, Joe Comerford, and people like you've just described, including uh, Melissa Hoffer and people like that who are just giving us hope that, hey, perhaps we can actually achieve that such an important goal. I want to turn our attention to... Well, can I just say, Buzz, sure. we all have a role to play, right? So, you know, I represent beautiful towns, you know, 25 of them, as you said, and there are many municipal officials and volunteers tuning in, um, and they're tuning in because solar in our communities is a really divisive issue. Um, and I'm hoping, and one of the reasons I, you know, I've devoted my time to this um, and really pushed for this is that I'm hoping that we can all learn and then have significantly nuanced conversations with each other about the opportunities and perils of solar. Um, and we can find, we're going to have to find a way forward. And right now it's still very painful in local communities. Um, and I want to honor that. And that's the reason I was like, okay, we're going to get everybody to talk about what's happening and I'm going to get smarter and everybody's going to get smarter and hopefully we'll find a path forward um, that will that will be a bold for our region and our region will benefit and the whole Commonwealth will benefit um, while we you know, recognize the value of the land that we have right now, which is part of the climate solution. Uh, again, this administration sees that. So I just want to honor that it's, it's painful in local communities. And I love these people, and they're hanging on to their hats as they join this forum um, so that we can all find a way forward. Well, thank you for adding that, Senator Joe Comfort, because out of pain comes opportunity. And uh, the difference between uh, continuing to be a victim to your pain and actually making something good happen is seizing the opportunity, and certainly solar it's so important right now. Our climate is. I, I just want to want to add. I uh, I represented uh, eight Guantanamo detainees over a twelve year period, and one of them was a Libyan. And when I heard 
North Africa has never had the kind of flooding which it's experiencing right now. I'm not talking about the earthquake in Morocco. That's something different. But I'm talking about uh, up to 10,000 lives being estimated of being lost in the floods in Libya and just unthinkable towns. What, what we saw in Hawaii from the fire, towns are just decimated and, and the images are just so horrific I cannot find where my client is if my client is, and it's all attributable uh. to climate change. And uh, we just have to pay attention. It's, it's, you know, we have a, another fierce hurricane that's coming up a little bit earlier than we thought hurricanes ought it's to be coming true. up. Uh, it's just on us right now. It, 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 we can't just keep talking about it as some possibility in the future. Climate deniers are denying the obvious. So I'm so grateful to people like you who are paying attention to it. And we're going to take a break, but when we come back, another thing that's very meaningful to me as someone who has lived for 52 years in my town in the hill towns of Ashfield and I'm a town official I love our municipal buildings my wife for 20 years has chaired our library municipal buildings are so important and it's so difficult to just routine maintenance let alone improvement at those buildings so I want to talk to you about what's happening at the legislative level with regard to every one of our 351 towns and cities municipal buildings. We'll be right back with Senator Joe Comerford right after this. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. I'm Lisa Riley. Join me every Saturday at 9.30 a.m. here on WHMP as we share stories that shine a light on justice-involved individuals or just underdogs in the game of life, their struggles, their successes, and the many resources and opportunities available for those who are hustling to carve a new path and prove that failure isn't final. So unlock your future, rewrite your story. This is The Hustler Files. Are you tired of feeling like a watchless hero in a world full of timekeeping villains? Fear not. Hero Watch Repair is here to save the day. With over 20 years of experience and a heroic five-star customer rating, Hero Watch is the ultimate superhero of watch repair and customization in the valley. These heroes possess the power to buy, fix, sell, and customize watches like no other. They'll swoop in, rescue your timepiece, and restore it to its former glory. Call Avery at Hero Watch Repair, East Hampton. Local farms are the lifeblood of our valley, and boy have they had a tough year. At Northeast Solar, we feel a deep connection to farms. Sustainable agriculture needs sustainable energy, and sustainable energy is our mission. Energy is often the single highest cost for a working farm. By reducing those costs with solar energy, farms can sustain their business, which helps them sustain our communities. Support our local farms. Learn more about Northeast Solar's work with local farms at northeast-solar.com farms. Jay Burnham here, voice of the Massachusetts Minutemen. Touchdown, Massachusetts! I just wanted to let you know that all of the UMass football action can be heard right here on our new flagship home for Massachusetts football. It's WHMP. A little bit of hammering and a little bit of humoring. Today's Homeowner with Danny Lipford. Home improvement ideas and advice. Today's Homeowner with Danny Lipford. Sundays at noon, 101.5, 1400-WHMP. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. 
WHMP. And we are back with Senator Joe Comerford, who represents the Hampshire, Franklin, and Worcester District. And I, there are hearings. There's a hearing today that's going to involve uh, municipal buildings. Could you tell us about that, Senator Comerford? Absolutely. Um, you know, unfortunately, folks, this is another one of like a soapbox I can stand on, but I'll be I'll try to be less passionate. Although I'm really <laughs> passionate about this. So, you know, as you know, because you live in Asheville, Buzz, our small communities, um, you know, they are heroes of mine, the municipal volunteers and officials in these communities. And the state hasn't made it easy. Um, in fact, it's made it hard for them to maintain a municipal infrastructure. And here I'm not talking about school buildings because we do have a school building authority and I'm not talking about libraries because we have a library authority, although I think you and I both agree we could do a better job both getting more money there and helping them become green and healthy, um, which is something that Mindy, Dom, and I have been focused on. Um, But we do nothing for public safety, DPWs, um, town halls, and it's really to our peril. Um, So today, Rep. Natalie Blay and I are uh, driving into Boston, um, and we're talking along with a mayor, a panel of mayors put together by the Mass Municipal Association and municipal officials from Royalston, uh, Bernardston, and Ashfield um, about a municipal building authority, uh, which has been an idea that Natalie and I have been pushing for um, all the time we've been in the legislature. Uh, but it, I do believe it's sparking and it's an idea whose time has come. I, I just I, I want to interrupt. Just Could you just tell us what is an authority? Sure. An authority would be basically, um, it's two parts, right? First, it's money. Um, and often these things fail because there's not a pay for. Um, and we have a pay for. We've. Uh, I want to just shout out to my great chief of staff, Jared Friedman, um, who did some analyzing and working with state officials on the marijuana excise tax and how it makes its way to the general fund. And right now, there's about $167 million generated annually, and I want a third of that to go back into a municipal building authority. Uh, so it's first, it's money. Um, and then the second is, how the heck do you structure this for maximum benefit? Um, how does the money go out? How much money goes out? Uh, and as you know, and I know, uh, the MSBA, the Mass School Building Authority, the MDLC, the Mass uh, building, the library building folks, um, they have pretty intricate processes. We're not envisioning as intricate a process in this bill, but certainly there would be an authority with money and parameters uh, that would help get towns a percentage of the budget they need um, to leverage other grants, both state and federal, um, and to leverage their own taxpayer money to build things like DPW offices, fire stations, public safety complexes, town halls. And you'd be shocked, Buzz, if you saw what I saw uh, about where these good folks are operating. And that's everybody from the tax collectors to the public health officials to the town clerks. They're operating in, um, in buildings that are very sick, right, full of mold, freezing, often open to the elements, um, East Hampton just had to. East Hampton had to vacate all its its city hall personnel because of mold problems and health problems. Exactly, exactly. I mean, these are public servants 
um, who are operating, you know, these are firefighters who actually are getting sick because the, the fire trucks are in buildings where they have to be maintained, but there's no ventilation. And so there's all these tests that have to be run, so they're breathing smoke. There's no place to leave their equipment, um, and so that's in the air instead of properly ventilated, and we know the hazards there already about the equipment uh, and the kind of um, uh, chemicals that they are they come in contact with. Um, we have, unfortunately, in this, you know, you with your beautiful civil rights hat on, we have holding facilities in police departments that are... Service in Norton has issued a flash flood warning for northeastern Hartford County in northern Connecticut, northern Tolan County in northern Connecticut, northwestern Linden County in northern Connecticut, southwestern Worcester County in central Massachusetts, southeastern Hampton County in western Massachusetts, southeastern Hampshire County in western Massachusetts until 12.30 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time. At 9.23 a.m. Eastern Daylight Time, Doppler radar indicated thunderstorms with a history of producing torrential rainfall and causing flash flooding. The expected rainfall rate is 2 to 4 inches in one hour. Additional rainfall amounts of 2 to 4 inches are possible in the warned area. Flash flooding is ongoing or expected to begin shortly. Hazards include flash flooding caused by thunderstorms. Flash flooding of small creeks and streams, urban areas, highways, streets and underpasses as well as other poor drainage and low-lying areas. Some locations that will experience flash flooding include Springfield, Enfield, Vernon, Agawam, South Windsor, Ludlow, Southbridge, Longmeadow, Suffield, East Longmeadow, Ellington, Tallinn, Belchertown, Wilbraham, Charlton, Coventry, Palmer, Stafford, Summers and Dudley. Winchester, Lexington, Concord, Arlington, they don't need this money. Um, they got plenty of money, and they have a big tax base and lots of industry, um, and they don't get to have it. <laughs> if I can be so bold, um, it's really only four towns like those in our district, in the Berkshires, in North Central, Worcester County, you know, the places where um, we have a beautiful, small economies. Um, but they and but and we have a very scarce. And we've talked about this on another show. Declining population, um, and we just can't make the math work, right? We we already pay lower salaries. We already have issues funding our schools. Um, we cannot build a salt shed or a fire station. We just cannot without overburdening taxpayers. Um, many of whom are on fixed income because we're also getting older. Uh, so this is a little bit of justice for our people, and we've got to get it done. It's just so great. It's so important. I know our, our next guest um, after the break is going to be Ruth Folkman, who deals with people who are suffering from depression. And every time I read what goes on in Washington, D.C.'s legislature, I suffer from depression. But um, when I speak to our local delegation, um, uh, uh, Joe Comfort, it's just so wonderful how attentive you are to the needs of the people in this region, the towns in this region, and our planet. 
at the same time. So it's, it's truly uplifting um, to just have a conversation with you on air. I think I'm supposed to be impartial as a commentator on the radio, but uh, I, nothing impartial about the way I feel about you and the Natalie Blaze and the Lindsay Sabadosas. We are, we're lucky, we're blessed, and uh, we're particularly blessed to be able to talk to you on Talk to Talk. Well, thanks for the time, Buzz, and um, enjoy the rest of the show. Hi, Ruth, and um, we'll see you all soon. <laughs> and you stay dry. Thank you. We will be right back with Ruth Folkman and hopefully not talking about my depression and anxiety. We'll be right back. Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. A Williamsburg resident will lead the state's new Office of Outdoor Recreation. Paul Janik spent many years as program director for the Department of Conservation and Recreation and will now use those skills to enhance outdoor opportunities in Massachusetts. Janik tells the Gazette he's humbled and a little daunted about the new role but excited to promote Massachusetts as a place to come and play. Outdoor recreation boosts the economy in Massachusetts by $9.5 billion in gross domestic product and supports over 93,000 jobs. Jury selection in the Hampshire Superior Court murder trial of Cara Rintala concluded yesterday, and the trial starts today in Hampshire Superior Court in Northampton. Superior Court Judge Francis E. Flannery is presiding. Rintala is accused of killing her wife, Anna Marie Cochran Rintala, at their Granby home in 2010. Jurors deadlocked in the first two trials, but found Rintala guilty at the third trial. She was sentenced to life in prison without parole. The Supreme Judicial Court overturned that verdict and ordered a new trial. Think of movies about the financial system in your mind is almost sure to go to Gordon Gecko on Wall Street or Leonardo DiCaprio's gyrating Jordan Belfort in The Wolf of Wall Street. When Hollywood takes on Wall Street, it usually heads straight to the C-suite. Joan Holiday has more. The protagonist of Dumb Money is an amateur investor who trades out of his basement in Massachusetts with a bandana tied around his head. The film chronicles when Keith Gill's enthusiastic endorsement of GameStop stock fueled a viral trading frenzy that rocked Wall Street and humbled the hedge funds that had shorted the brick-and-mortar video game company. Sony Pictures is betting that the David vs. Goliath story can be a big-screen attraction, too. The movie will be in theaters this weekend. Joan Holiday, WHMP News. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. In 2022, Whole Children moved its campus to Northampton. Continuing the programming we've offered since 2004 for children and teens of all abilities, including developmental and intellectual disabilities, as well as those with autism. After school and Saturday classes for this session run from October 3rd to December 9th. Take a look at the classes we have. Yoga, chorus, cooking, dance movement, and video game. Come take a tour. Wholechildren.org. What's cooking at River Valley Co-op? Here's avid eater, grocery shopper, and co-op member Bill Newman. 
rutabagas, sweet potatoes, turnips, and leeks. Local produce is rooting its way to the co-op every day. At the co-op meat counter, try coffee-rubbed hanger steak, a delicious mix of sweet and bold heat. New recipe and you need just a pinch of this herb or that spice? Get just the right amount in the co-op's bulk department. River Valley Co-op, wild about local. Everyone is welcome. Technicians, this is your chance. Get up to a $5,000 sign-on bonus at Gary Rome Hyundai or refer a technician to get a $2,500 referral fee. Be part of the family and receive truly exceptional compensation and full benefits. Join the Time Magazine's National Dealer of the Year team with a proven track record of team members averaging over 10 years at Gary Rome Hyundai. Technicians get up to a $5,000 sign-on bonus or refer a technician to get a $2,500 referral fee. To learn more and apply, go to GaryRomeHyundai.com family. You're a nonprofit doing good work in the community. You want to let people know? That's easy. Talk to Hannah. Tell her you want to have a PSA on WHMP. If you're a community nonprofit, WHMP helps you communicate. Have an event? Need donations? Volunteers? Talk to Hannah. She'll help you craft a message and we'll run it at no cost. Hi, it's Hannah. Email me at hward at whmp.com or call me at 586-7400. WHMP News, Information, and the Arts and messages from community nonprofits. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. WHMP. We welcome to the show Ruth Folkman. She is a community Dharma steward for the Insight Meditation Community of Western Massachusetts. Many people have been in Eastworks and have seen this center of the Buddhist community here in Northampton. Ruth Folkman, I don't know much about this, but I do know many people in the community who are have what they call a Buddhist practice, and you are here with us today because I, in particular, would like to know about what is happening this weekend at the Edwards Church, where a major person in this movement, in this insight meditation community, Joseph Goldstein, is coming to Northampton. Why is he coming here, and what is he going to say, and why does it matter to the people of this community? Oh, thank you. Thanks for uh, having me here and for that warm introduction. We so, should, uh, let me just note one a little bit more. Ruth Folkman uh, has a practice, a mindfulness practice here in Northampton. She saw for many years individuals uh, for depression and anxiety. She now uh, actually does classes instead of individual therapy, a recent change in her practice. But tell us, Joseph Goldstein is coming here. Why? Why does it matter? And who is he? Joseph Goldstein, we are so grateful that he has offered to do this benefit for the Insight uh, Meditation Community of Western Mass, which I'm going to refer to as IWM. Um, we're having our 25th year celebration, and he agreed to come and offer a question and response opportunity to benefit our sangha and as an offering to the community. Stop there. To benefit your what? Our 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 sangha. And what's a sangha? Ah, sangha. A sangha. Oh my God! What a setup that was, Newman. <laughs> what's a sangha? Thank you for that. Yeah, a sangha is a, it's a community of like-minded practitioners who are interested in the teachings of the Dharma, of the teachings of the Buddha. 
Okay. And tell us about Goldstein. He's going to give a talk. He's going to have a Q&A. It's in person at the Edwards Church, and it's also online. It's a hybrid event. It's a hybrid event, yeah. And there is a large Buddhist community here in Northampton. There are practitioners everywhere. It's kind of a quiet thing being a, <laughs> having a Buddhist practice. It's individual. But there are, I don't know how many, I suppose we don't have a count, but there are thousands of people in the valley who have a pra- what's called a Buddhist practice, yes? Yes, it's a rich, rich, vibrant community here in this uh, Connecticut Valley. Okay, so in Goldstein, what role does he play in all this? Joseph Goldstein is the man. You know, he's really credited uh, as one of the first American Buddhist teachers, deeply embedded in practice uh, from years that he spent studying in Thailand. And so he came, when he came back to the States after a Peace Corps volunteer there, he is credited with starting, uh, co-starting with a couple of other loved teachers, the Insight Meditation Society as a residential uh, retreat community in Barrie, Massachusetts. But he's also a a loved uh, author. He's written a number of books about Buddhism and Dharma, the teachings of the Buddha, Dharma is the teachings of the Buddha. The teachings of the Buddha. Okay, so explain this, if you would, please. You have, I, I walk past your office regularly. It's right here in downtown Northampton. And it is a mindfulness practice. I think that's how you describe it and how many describe it. And if you look uh, at Joseph Goldstein's writings, he talks a lot about mindfulness. What is the relationship and or the difference between mindfulness and a Buddhist meditation practice? Mm. Well, there's so, yeah. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to play stump the expert, but, uh, <laughs> or, or ask, it's probably just asking an impossible question. But tell us, mindfulness, uh, Buddhist practice, are these kind of the same things? They're, they're so intimately connected that it is hard to separate them because fundamentally mindfulness is this capacity to be awake to what is here and now in the present moment. Okay, so when we talk about a Buddhist practice, what does that mean? I mean, I know what I mean. What does it mean? Yeah, a Buddhist practice is this... It means that we are interested in, we're curious about the teachings that are so ancient. 2,700 years ago, these teachings have been nurtured and passed on because... They fundamentally resonate with so many people as a way of understanding the complexity of our human experience. Okay, but I have this impression of people going to the uh, the meditation center in Barry uh, or the other one in in, in, uh, in in Western Massachusetts, and perhaps to yours <clears throat> in East Hampton, and people sitting. Yes, and they sit. They are silent for days. Is that part of it? Is it a necessary part of it? And what happens on a day-to-day basis? People talk about my practice, or my meaning my Buddhist practice. I mean, are they sitting silently? Are they meditating for uh, some amount of time every day? What does it mean? Um, 
meditation is interesting because it's a, it's a means to give us access to the ways of the mind, right? That in everyday life, as we're moving through the day, it's very easy to get on autopilot and not really be noticing, what am I thinking about? What am I feeling? What's happening in my body? You know, we're focused on, I got to go to the grocery store. I've got to make dinner. I've got to do that. You know, I've got to listen to this uh, hearing that's so important. So when we have a meditation practice, it helps us remember, be here. Now notice what is right here and bring our curiosity to it so that we're intentional. When we're off the cushion, you know, we sit on a cushion not because we want to be really good at sitting on a cushion for 30 or 45 minutes. And is that how long you sit on a cushion for? Silently, quietly, by yourself, every day? Really? Well, it, you know, it varies. Everybody has their own relationship to what gives them access to that, knowing what my intention is. I think one of the best signs I've ever seen in my life was in the Shambhala Center in Shelburne Falls. And outside on the door, it said, if you want to know more about what we do, inquire within. Right. <laughs> I thought that was just brilliant. Right. Oh, I inquire within. Right, right. Yeah, because you have to start there. Right? You have to s- okay, let me ask you this. Yeah. You've been doing this for how long? You've been meditating for how long? 25 years. And what does it mean to meditate? What is it? Mm. Well, formal meditation is a practice that you can do sitting, you can do standing, you can do walking, you can do eating. It's simply about gathering your attention to bring it to whatever your focus is. So in some traditions, they're mantras. So you sit and you have something that you're repeating in your mind. Or there are meditation practices that are about opening the heart, right? To be more loving and open to what's here, kinder. Um, And then there are practices that are about sitting in open awareness, just noticing, here's the activity of my mind. It's just a thought. This thought, I don't have to buy it. I don't have to pay attention to it, but I can notice oh, my mind is suggesting this, or my body is in pain right now. I can notice without getting caught up in the story about, oh, my God, I'm suffering. And is this about sitting or standing quietly, silently, by yourself? It's a singular personal activity? Is that what we're talking about? Well, meditation itself is often something that you do that's quiet. This is my relationship to myself. But this is why our sangha or our community is so important, that we recognize that we're not alone in this practice, that we are part of a large community, not only in our little sangha, but around the world, that there are people who commit to this practice as a way of being awake. The event that is this Sunday, September 17th, 2 o'clock to 4 o'clock at the Edwards Church, refreshments afterwards, as I understand it, uh, with Joseph Goldstein as the 
it's okay in Buddhism to describe him as the star. Uh, he is the star. <laughs> okay. Yes. All right. All right. <laughs> Focusing on outside oneself for a moment. Uh, this has a purpose. I mean, there, there's a fundraising aspect to, to this. Tell us what that is. Absolutely. Absolutely. So it, this is the 25th anniversary of the, our sangha. And so our intention... In with East this, Hampton? In East Hampton, yeah. We have a bricks and mortar meditation center at Eastworks in East Hampton. And so the goal of this benefit is to raise money to diversify and expand our teachers who come and share the teachings with our community and also to support this center, you know, that has its bricks and mortar. It has rent and insurance and staff. So there's money also that's needed just to keep that going. And for people who want to attend either in person at the Edwards Church or online uh, remotely, how do they do that? They would go to our website because here are a couple things about this event. It is a facilitated conversation. He's going to be responding to questions that have been submitted, facilitated by our beloved teacher, Devin Barry. Um, uh, so it's question and response. It's a hybrid event, meaning there are still about 30 seats available for in-person, and then it's going to be streamed through the Edwards Church uh, YouTube channel. Pre-registration is required, and you would go to the website, insight, the, it's uh, insightwma.org, or if you Google the insight Meditation Community of Western Mass, or any of those words, you would you'll probably come up you'll, with it. You'll get there. We are speaking with Ruth Folkman, who is a Community Dharma steward and active volunteer, a former member of the Board of Directors of the Insight Meditation Community of Western Massachusetts. We're going to be back in just a minute. We're going to hear more, well, about how to meditate right after this. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. Find local news and local talk for the Valley. It is critical that the investigation is not limited to federal violations of gender discrimination, but includes the alleged allegations of corruption, nepotism, abuse of power, and use of position to aid Ms. Cunningham's personal business. These allegations actually require an investigation by a different body than a Title IX investigator. Where the heart of the Pioneer Valley lives. 1015 and 1400 WHMP News, Information, and the Arts. A Northampton man contends with his slow passage into blindness. What's that like? Andrew Leland's new book, The Country of the Blind, is part memoir, part historical and cultural investigation. Leland's determined not to merely survive the transition, but to revel in that which makes blindness enlightening, accepting uncertainty, connecting with others across differences. Warm and funny, The Country of the Blind is an exhilarating tour of a way of being most of us have never paused to consider. Pick up The Country of the Blind at Northampton's independent bookstore, Broadside Bookshop. I'm not exaggerating when I say this. QC Kinetics can change your life. 
You can live again without that chronic joint pain and without drugs or surgery. QC Kinetics is advanced regenerative medicine. They take your body's own concentrated healing properties and put them right into your aching joints to restore and repair that damaged tissue that's causing all of that horrible pain. The patient satisfaction reports are astonishing. Finally, a real alternative to the old ways of dealing with pain. And unlike surgery, there's no downtime with QC Kinetics treatments. If you have constant pain in your knees, hips, shoulders, or back, you need to call and get a free consultation from the medical professionals at QC Kinetics today. Imagine this fall, moving around pain-free, doing the things you love again, walking, hiking, playing with grandkids. Call QC Kinetics today for lasting relief. Call 413-992-5450-413-992-5450-413-992-5450. listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. We continue our conversation with Ruth, Ruth Folkman, who is a community Dharma steward for the Insight Meditation Community of Western Massachusetts, an active volunteer, former member of the Board of Directors, and she is with us today because we want you to know about this talk by Joseph Goldstein this Sunday at Edwards Church. You can also uh, participate remotely. And what I would like to know, Ruth Folkman, is... What is the title of Joseph Goldstein's talk, and what will be the content to the extent you can preview it for us? Yeah, the title of this event is Dharma Practice in Daily Life and the Path of Liberation. And Dharma means what? Dharma is the teachings of the Buddha. Okay. Yeah, these universal teachings. So daily practice, meaning daily meditation or Buddhist practice in daily life? Yes. And liberation? And liberation. Could you connect those dots for us? Yeah, because, you know, fundamentally, every Buddhist practitioner has a meditation practice. But just to be clear, we don't practice because we want to be really good at sitting on a cushion for 20 or 30 or 45 minutes. We practice because we want to bring it into our life to relate to our experience in a way that's wise and intentional. And so that's what's beautiful about this talk that he's offering is that he's going to connect those dots about the teachings of the Buddha and how does this help us live a life where we're not so caught up in our own suffering in what is not as we would like it to be because life is complicated and we are all challenged by things in our society, in our community, in our families that aren't as we would like them to be. So is this liberation part of a practice of meditation, that the meditation gets you to this internal kind of liberation? And I guess, I know we, this is a, like a massive question, we just don't have that kind of time, but how do you learn to meditate? Uh, well, minute by minute. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, you learn lots of ways to do it, you know, online. There are lots of guided practices. I mean, especially with, uh, since this pandemic, an explosion of things that are available online. But what's most helpful is to practice with other people, to come to our center in East Hampton, where you get to feel what's it like to be with other people on this path. It's very motivating. Even though it's a totally personal, internal kind of process? 
Well, you do it together. You do it together because we don't just practice for ourselves. We practice because we know we are interconnected with all beings. And back to the title of Joseph Goldstein's talk, which gets to the word liberation. What do you mean by that? Well, liberation, liberation from, you know, habits of mind that are sometimes so deeply embedded that we don't, we don't even recognize we're thinking this way. It's a ticketed event. Tell people how to get tickets, please. Yes, please sign up. Pre-registration is required. You go to our website to register. There are still some seats available for in-person, lots of seats for hybrid. Insight Meditation Community of Western Mass, insightwma.org. And in keeping with the teachings of the Buddhist Buddha and the meditation practice, I take it that if people can't afford a ticket, they won't oh, have to pay. Oh, my goodness. Yes, yes, yes. Thank you, thank you. <gasps> so important. It is a benefit. We hope to make money. And also, if you don't have money, it's not a problem. Come. We want you to hear these words, this message, to have a little taste of what it means to be on this spiritual path. So it's not, it's not, it's not a problem if you don't have money. Come. Ruth Falkman, thank you so very much for being with us, and thank you for helping to bring Joseph Goldstein to the Valley this Sunday, Edwards Church, 2 to 4 o'clock. Thanks so very much. Thank you for having me. million meals provided to over 8,500 people in Franklin and Hampshire counties. The Amherst Survival Center, making sure our neighbors have the food they need. Join the Amherst Survival Center's Hike for Hunger. Sign up now, set a fundraising goal, and come October, hit the trails. Ask friends and family to support your goal and support the Amherst Survival Center's food and nutrition programs. Hike Mount Toby, explore Buffum Falls, hike wherever you like. Bring your people, bring your pup. Sign up at Hike for Hunger at the Amherst Survival Center website. Does your partner threaten or isolate you? Do they control where you go, who you talk to, or what choices you make? Are you afraid of what they might do? You have the right to a healthy and safe relationship. If you're experiencing abuse, emotional, verbal, physical, Safe Passage is here for you. It's all free and completely confidential. Call our helpline to explore your options and plan for safety. That's 413-586-5066, Monday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. Or visit safepass.org today. WHMP Northampton and WRSI HD2 Turner's Falls, WHMP.com, a Northampton Radio Group station. It's 10 o'clock. By Indeed.com. I'm Deborah Rodriguez, convicted murderer in custody in Pennsylvania. Shortly after 8 a.m., our suspect was captured. Governor Josh Shapiro at a news conference moments ago in Chester County after police SWAT teams captured Danilo Cavalcante in a wooded area about 45 miles from Philadelphia. The AP reports searchers used thermal imaging from aircraft above to help officers with their search on the ground below. CBS Philadelphia's Janelle Burrell. They had police helicopters circling, but because of the rain, they had to ground those helicopters. They were finally able to launch this morning, and that 
was is what led up to his his ultimate capture. He'd escaped from the Chester County Jail 13 days ago while he was waiting for transfer to a state prison. Live shots showed dozens of officers posing in a parking lot with Cavalcante, who was wearing a gray Philadelphia Eagles sweatshirt. He was found guilty of killing his ex-girlfriend in front of her two children. Inflation sped up in August. As gas prices jumped, the consumer price index rose 3.7 percent from a year ago. The fallout? CBS News business analyst Jill Schlesinger. This report is weighing heavily on the Federal Reserve. The Fed's next policy meeting is next week, and it is expected, at least from the hints that we've seen from speeches officials have made since the July meeting, that the central bank will probably hold steady next week on interest rates. Two controversial world leaders held a summit in Siberia today. Reporter Alex Jensen has details from Seoul. North Korean leader Kim Jong-un met his Russian counterpart at a remote space center where he backed Moscow's sacred fight against the West, though weapon support in Ukraine's not been officially confirmed. In return for the kind of rocket technology that Vladimir Putin was able to show off while they were together. The death toll from severe flooding in eastern Libya has now topped 5,100. The U.N. Migration Agency says more than 30,000 have been left homeless. Brian Lander with the World Food Program. People have lost homes. They've lost all their belongings. So shelter will be a will be an urgent need. Food, of course. A missing masterpiece has been returned. Correspondent Vicki Barker is at the foreign desk. Three years after the early Van Gogh landscape was stolen from this museum south of Amsterdam... It came back, bubble-wrapped inside a blue Ikea bag. Handed over to art detective Arthur Brand. It's back. He's not naming the tipster. The Dow is up 56 points. This is CBS News. You need to hire fast and hire right? You need Indeed. Their all-in-one hiring platform helps you attract, interview, and hire candidates efficiently. Visit Indeed.com credit. Have you Googled yourself lately? Are there negative posts from an ex-employee or from a former client? Maybe an outdated news article or sensitive personal information about your family? Search engines don't always get it right. For right or wrong, it's your reputation on the line. That's where Reputation Defender by Norton comes in. One of the most trusted names in online reputation repair. Reputation Defender has been fixing people's search results for over 15 years. Their cutting-edge approaches help you to wipe away unwanted information in your search results. They also promote the good stuff so that it rises to the top, helping you put your best foot forward. Your good name is too valuable to leave to the whims of a Google algorithm. Take control with Reputation Defender. You can start by getting your free Reputation Report Card at reputationdefender.com or call 800-401-6681 to speak to an expert. That's 800-401-6681. Vaccine mistrust shifts to animals. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. A Williamsburg resident will lead the state's new Office of Outdoor Recreation. Paul Janik spent many years as program director for the Department of Conservation and Recreation and will now use those skills to enhance outdoor opportunities in Massachusetts. Jennick tells the Gazette he's humbled and a little daunted about the new role, but excited to promote Massachusetts as a place to come and play. Outdoor recreation boosts the economy in Massachusetts by $9.5 billion in gross domestic product and supports over 93,000 jobs.
Jury selection in the Hampshire Superior Court murder trial of Cara Rintala concluded yesterday, and the trial starts today in Hampshire Superior Court in Northampton. Superior Court Judge Francis E. Flannery is presiding. Rintala is accused of killing her wife, Anna Marie Cochran Rintala, at their Granby home in 2010. Jurors deadlocked in the first two trials, but found Rintala guilty at the third trial. She was sentenced to life in prison without parole. The Supreme Judicial Court overturned that verdict and ordered a new trial. Think of movies about the financial system in your mind is almost sure to go to Gordon Gecko on Wall Street or Leonardo DiCaprio's gyrating Jordan Belfort in The Wolf of Wall Street. When Hollywood takes on Wall Street, it usually heads straight to the C-suite. Joan Holiday has more. The protagonist of Dumb Money is an amateur investor who trades out of his basement in Massachusetts with a bandana tied around his head. The film chronicles when Keith Gill's enthusiastic endorsement of GameStop stock fueled a viral trading frenzy that rocked Wall Street and humbled the hedge funds that had shorted the brick-and-mortar video game company. Sony Pictures is betting that the David vs. Goliath story can be a big-screen attraction, too. The movie will be in theaters this weekend. Joan Holiday, WHMP News. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg on WHMP. And welcome to the show. I am Buzz Eisenberg. Um, there, uh, during the 12 years that I uh, represented eight Guantanamo detainees, uh, there was so much that was disheartening about the United States response to 9-11 and the conduct of the quote-unquote war on terror um, it's, if I started talking about it today, it would, uh, I wouldn't finish for about another 12 years. But um, one of the things that was most disheartening was the, uh, what I learned about how many healthcare professionals were willing to compromise their values, their oath in the way that they uh, conducted themselves in, um, I guess, the right, fostering, promoting the United States mission to deal with Al-Qaeda and the Taliban uh, in a forceful way. Um, most notable was, to me, the American Psychological Association, particularly two psychologists who made what was reported to be over $80 million by helping to design those torture regimes which were used uh, on my eight clients and on all 789 men who went through the gates of that dreadful place we call the Guantanamo Bay Detention uh, center. There is a book that has just been written by Dr. Roy Idelson. It is called Doing Harm, How the World's Largest Psychological Association Lost Its Way in the War on Terror. And we are very lucky to have with us today Roy Idelson himself to talk about the book and why he wrote it and what it's about. Hello, Roy. Hi. Uh, thanks very much. It is uh, absolutely my pleasure. I am so grateful that you've written this book. Um, so what moved you to write this book? Well, I've been involved in this struggle uh, as a psychologist for now close to 20 years. And what a, a community of dissident psychologists emerged over time when the American Psychological Association, the APA, 
seem to always take an accommodative stance to what the Department of Defense or the CIA wanted psychologists to do. And eventually, we had some success in bringing some ethics reforms to the APA. But it's a story that I feel most people don't know. And I worry that if we don't know it, uh, certain similarities may come about in the future. And I want my profession to do better next time around. And I've also felt that I've I kind of owed it to the victims of torture and abuse at Guantanamo and elsewhere who, who were terribly harmed by members of my profession and by, you know, indirectly, at least by the APA's failure to take a strong stand against the war on terror or these aspects of the war on terror. You know, I had the absolute privilege in a number of different contexts to get to know uh, Brigadier General, the retired Brigadier General, Stephen Sinoxis, who became a uh, stalwart member of Physicians for Human Rights. This was a psychiatrist who was a general in the armed services and who um, felt the need to become a fierce advocate. I use the word fierce perhaps inappropriately because his advocacy was unrelenting opposed to those people who, in uh, with, with the doctor uh, title uh, affixed to their name, nevertheless did unthinkable things. And he wrote about your book, uh, once again, Doing Harm, How the World's Largest Psychological Association Lost Its Way in the War on Terror. He wrote this, In Doing Harm, Roy Idelson exposes a dark chapter in the history of American psychology. Some practitioners' complicity with government authorities in abetting torture violated the highest ethical standards. The story must be told if it is not to be repeated. Um, those words really rang in my head as I poured through your book, Roy. Um, I, we didn't have a chance to talk before we went on the air live, but if, do you have a copy of the book with you in front of you? Uh, I do. I do. Well, I would love it if you look to your introduction and at the bottom, um, at the end of the second full paragraph, beginning with the words, after 9-11, the gloves come off. I would love for you to read that down through the following paragraph because it says it all to me. Uh, after 9-11, the gloves come off near the bottom of the page. Uh, I'm Okay. Uh, if you would read that, I would love that. Sure. And just tell me when to stop. Okay. <laughs> I should start at that point in short. Sure. Yeah. In short, it was hardly a secret that the Bush administration was prepared to toss aside international law, human rights standards, and perhaps even basic human decency in pursuing its agenda. And that's exactly what it did. Something else, however, wasn't nearly so obvious, that members of my own profession, fellow psychologists, would play facilitating roles in this unconscionable dissent. Nor was it initially so clear that the world's largest organization of psychologists, the American Psychological Association, would fail to forcefully challenge the barbaric enterprise of abuse and torture as it unfolded. 
the APA could have joined with other human rights groups seeking to constrain a White House set on unbridled and far-reaching retribution that brutalized prisoners and diminished the country's moral standing around the world. For the APA, however, that seemingly proved to be the road not taken. That was such a powerful uh, introductory statement that summarized so much of what the book chillingly demonstrates for us, which is people who we retain in order to help us grapple with those ghosts which all of us have, those you know demons inside of us that we'd like to control, and we seek help to have those people engage in the creation of a torture regime, how best to solicit information, which the Geneva Convention says we have no right to get. They only have to tell us their name, rank, mm-hmm. and serial number. They don't have to speak. Our Fifth Amendment says somebody who's accused of something has the right to remain silent. Well, torture does exactly the opposite. It tries to extract unwillingly information from people, which, of course, because pain is involved, is unreliable. And your book just outlines that. You called it doing harm. Why did you call it doing harm? Well, doing harm is, the title is based on the opposite idea or principle that health professionals, including psychologists, should do no harm. And had psychologists and the APA insisted on that fundamental ethical principle, a lot might have been different. We, we know from the uh, Office of Legal Counsel memos, the torture memos, that the Bush administration required a psychologist to be present whenever waterboarding took place. And the argument made by the administration was, since psychologists are committed to do no harm, if they are present, that means that the detainee is not being harmed by the waterboard. It's an absurd notion. And yet, you know, it was used as a key defense. And we'll never know what might have happened if the APA had come out strongly against the involvement of psychologists, because at the very least, the Bush administration would have had to find another defense for arguing that detainees were not being tortured. Why do you think your colleagues in the American Psychological Association, why did they um, become complicit in this kind of treatment, which runs so contrary to the oath that every psychologist must take in order to get a license. Why, why, as a psychologist, why do you think your colleagues allowed that to happen? Well, for a variety of reasons. And I should note that the APA initially, right after 9-11, did some very good things. So, for example, they activated a disaster response network with the American Red Cross. They sent pro bono psychologists to New York City, to Washington, D.C., elsewhere to help, uh, to help the families of those who had died, to help the first responders, to help school children who were traumatized. That was psychology at its best. At the same time, or shortly thereafter, the APA seemingly decided 
we want psychology to be a player in the war on terror. We want to be part of these counterterrorism efforts. And in part, I think it's because the APA has always looked for ways to promote psychology and to expand the professional practice. And that was a mistake. Rather than pointing out what psychologists cannot do, the APA went to the Pentagon, they went to the CIA, and they emphasized what psychologists are capable of contributing. Uh, this was a terrible decision in my mind. And then afterwards, you know, there were all kinds of excuses offered. Some of the individual psychologists would have said, well, I would, we were following orders. You know, we were told to do this and we did it. Some will claim it was simply, you know, patriotism on their part. I find it a little, it, it's unusual for a patriot to have a company that receives $81 million dollars from the CIA. Uh, and you're referring specifically to Dr. Bruce Jessen and Dr. James Mitchell, the two psychologists who were, in fact, helping to design these torture regimes for the small sum of $81 million, right? Right, right. And But they were not the only ones. I mean, the, the abuse and torture, it was at its worst. CIA black sites, but at other places, at Bagram in Afghanistan, at Guantanamo, which was run by the Pentagon, uh, we, torture became, well, abuse became routine, and torture was not all that unusual either. Uh, it was, it, it's a sad thing, and my worry, again, we made progress. The, in 2015, the APA instituted some new ethics reforms. One of them prohibits psychologists from participating in national security interrogations. The other prohibits psychologists from, from being present at places like Guantanamo unless they're either working on behalf of the detainees or providing psychological care to the military personnel there. Those were important changes, but from the day those changes were almost unanimously adopted by the APA's governing council, there were efforts to undo them, typically frequently led by certain military psychologists, by the Pentagon, by the U.S. government. They did not want these changes to hold and they've made progress. It's kind of, it feels to me like a slow slide back toward potentially awful things. We're not there yet, but the military intelligence establishment has tremendous influence over the APA, and that has not changed. The APA wants a seat at the, that table. They want the stature. They want the funding for psychologists that only the Department of Defense can provide. And so it, it's a worrisome time, I believe. It it's, uh, sends chills down my back because I remember those times when the APA was so complicit, those times when 
even just a decision to keep people in isolation and the psychological impact of having them in isolation. Uh, if listeners don't know this, um, you certainly do, Dr. Roy Idelson, that what, uh, with, when I had clients at Guantanamo, they were kept in cell blocks. There were like six cells to a block, a little wing. And they made sure not only that everyone was isolated in their own cell, but that none of the six could speak the same language so that the isolation, even if they screamed to each other, they would hear another language that they didn't understand. That was recommended by military psychologists, which always just made my head swim, given what psychologists' mission is in life. Um, so I want to talk to you, Roy Idelson, about who your target audience is for this book, Doing Harm, How the World's Largest Psychological Association lost its way in the war on terror. I want to ask you when we come back, who is this intended for and what is your hope after reading it that people will learn? We'll be right back with Dr. Roy Idelson right after this. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. Here comes the money. You could be one word away from $1,000. It's a grand in the hand on WHMP. Listen each weekday for the $1,000 keyword at around 815, 1215, and 415. When you hear the keyword, just go to WHMP.com and enter it for a shot at $1,000. You have until midnight to enter the keyword of the day. It's a grand in the hand on WHMP. Complete rules and details on WHMP.com. The Daily Hampshire Gazette, the Pioneer Valley's newspaper covering Holyoke to Deerfield and Belchertown to the Hilltowns, was awarded New England Newspaper of the Year for their local news coverage. Home delivered six days a week and online 24-7. Try their digital-only subscription options and stay connected with your community wherever you are. Pick up a copy on newsstands, subscribe, or visit gazettenet.com. The Daily Hampshire Gazette, covering the Pioneer Valley since 1786. Buy a mattress online? There are at least a hundred websites that'll ship you a mattress rolled up like a burrito and stuffed in a box. Wait a minute. You and your mattress will spend seven or eight intimate hours together every night for years. Don't you need more than an online video and some questionable reviews to know what it actually feels like? At Talon Furniture, we mostly sell therapeutic mattresses, not Tempur-Pedic. Don't want to mislead you. Therapeutic. Made in Brockton by fellow Red Sox fans. You like eating local? Try sleeping local. Therapeutic mattresses are clean. No toxic off-gassing. Come to Talon and lay down on a therapeutic. See what it feels like. You can have all the time you need. And we don't roll it up like a burrito, stuff it in a box, and cram it in your car. You won't have to wrestle it through the kitchen or up the stairs. We actually deliver your new mattress and set it up. Talon Furniture. A real store. Just down the hill from Amherst College. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. And we're continuing our conversation with Dr. Roy Idelson, who wrote what I consider to be a very important book called Doing Harm, How the World's Largest Psychological Association Lost Its Way in the War on Terror. And uh, what Dr. Idelson is sharing with us is 
how the American Psychological Association became complicit in not only condoning quietly the, the dreadful abuse that is called torture in its many forms, but also some of its members became complicit in actually designing systems on how to torture people in order to uh, further the military and the CIA and the White House at the time mission in the quote-unquote war on a noun, which we call <laughs> terror. So Roy Idelson, um, I w before the break I asked you, who is your target audience for this book? Well, I am hoping, you know, it's most directly relevant to health professionals, uh, both those, you know, who are established to, to younger people who hope to become psychologists, to graduate students. So there's that whole arena. I think it's, it's a value to anyone concerned or who focuses on issues of human rights or the history of the war on terror. But I also think it's, uh, I hope it proves valuable to the public more broadly, because in my mind, I know what happened in regard to psychologists and the APA all too well. But the APA is just an example of a powerful professional association in the United States. And there are other powerful civil society organizations. And we kind of count on them to be guardrails for democracy in a way. We give them power, we give them privileges, we give them the public trust. And in exchange, I feel we can, well we do and should count on them to stand up for human rights and to oppose government misconduct of of various sorts. And it's when these groups, not just the APA, abandon these responsibilities that the consequences can really be dire for a society. I mean, I think we've, I mean, history shows that to be true, not just in the United States. So I think there's a, a broader message about what needs to be done to kind of take the right path to place ethics above expediency and opportunism. And uh, my book is shows how that did not happen in a very crucial period in the history of the country and the history of psychology here. You know, I think so many of us who aren't psychologists, but nevertheless um, belong to an association like the American Psychological Association. In my profession as attorneys, we have the American Bar Association, we have regional bars associations, state Massachusetts Bar Association in my case, and local ones, um, the county bar associations, and we, every one of them states a mission. You could just go to their webpage, you could just, uh, right under their name, you'll see what the mission is. And um, when, as a member, you see that the association is doing something which you think is not just contrary to, but com completely anathema to the very mission uh, that uh, justifies its existence. A and again, we have medical societies for physicians. We have, uh, well, choose a profession, and, and you'll find such an organization. I think what comes screaming off the pages of your book, Doing Harm, 
is that as members, we have an obligation to make sure that the associations we belong to are furthering the mission which uh, they say that they exist to promote. Um, as a psychologist, what did it feel like? I mean, when, you, when the organization which you were a member was uh, promoting torture, when you wanted to be a healer who helped people get control over their inner demons, what, what did that feel like for you? You know, at first it was, and I, I don't, not alone, again, it was a community of dissident psychologists. At first I think it was disbelief, like we must be misunderstanding this. And then it was followed by a sense that, well, this will be cleared up and it will be cleared up quickly. You know, this is obviously wrong. The APA will change course and, you know, we'll move on in a positive direction. And so it was a source of outrage and, you know, awful amazement when instead the APA kind of stuck to its guns and for years kept insisting that psychologists help keep detention and op interrogation operations safe, legal, ethical, and effective. None of that was really true, but the APA pushed forward and it was very, very discouraging uh, as a psychologist, you know, upsetting for sure. Well, it, it may be in our rearview mirror, but it was only two, two days ago that we, I guess, I don't want to say celebrated, commemorated the 22nd anniversary of that horrific 9-11 event, which uh, just broke all of our hearts. And we were talking on the air on the, that commemorative day about the United States' uh, vengeful response, angry response to that unthinkable horror which happened on 9-11 in, uh, in, in four different sites in our country. And uh, I think that your book is a really important uh, operator's manual of how people uh, who, in the name of righteousness, can be led astray and do something exactly contrary to what they believe is right. The book is Doing Harm, How the World's Largest Psychological Association Lost Its Way in the War on Terror. You can find it in your local bookshop. Dr. Roy Idelson, I really want to thank you for joining us today. I want to thank you for writing this book. I think it's an important read for people not just in the profession, of psychology and psychiatry, but also for all of us. Thank you, Dr. Edelson. We're gonna be right back. More Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. A Williamsburg resident will lead the state's new Office of Outdoor Recreation. Paul Janik spent many years as program director for the Department of Conservation and Recreation and will now use those skills to enhance outdoor opportunities in Massachusetts. Janik tells the Gazette he's humbled and a little daunted about the new role, but excited to promote Massachusetts as a place to come and play. Outdoor recreation boosts the economy in Massachusetts by $9.5 billion in gross domestic product, and supports over 93,000 jobs. 
Jury selection in the Hampshire Superior Court murder trial of Cara Rintala concluded yesterday, and the trial starts today in Hampshire Superior Court in Northampton. Superior Court Judge Francis E. Flannery is presiding. Rintala is accused of killing her wife, Anna Marie Cochran Rintala, at their Granby home in 2010. Jurors deadlocked in the first two trials, but found Rintala guilty at the third trial. She was sentenced to life in prison without parole. The Supreme Judicial Court overturned that verdict and ordered a new trial. Think of movies about the financial system in your mind is almost sure to go to Gordon Gecko on Wall Street or Leonardo DiCaprio's gyrating Jordan Belfort in The Wolf of Wall Street. When Hollywood takes on Wall Street, it usually heads straight to the C-suite. Joan Holiday has more. The protagonist of Dumb Money is an amateur investor who trades out of his basement in Massachusetts with a bandana tied around his head. The film chronicles when Keith Gill's enthusiastic endorsement of GameStop stock fueled a viral trading frenzy that rocked Wall Street and humbled the hedge funds that had shorted the brick-and-mortar video game company. Sony Pictures is betting that the David vs. Goliath story can be a big-screen attraction, too. The movie will be in theaters this weekend. Joan Holiday, WHMP News. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. What's cooking at River Valley Co-op? Here's avid eater, grocery shopper, and co-op member Bill Newman. Rutabagas, sweet potatoes, turnips, and leeks. Local produce is rooting its way to the co-op every day. At the co-op meat counter, try coffee-rubbed hanger steak, a delicious mix of sweet and bold heat. New recipe and you need just a pinch of this herb or that spice? Get just the right amount in the co-op's bulk department. River Valley Co-op, wild about local. Everyone is welcome. Do you know what's happening this Friday at 9 a.m.? Is this week's Shop Friday, Hanger Pub and Grill? Correct! They go on sale this Friday at 9 a.m. Full value gift certificates and you save 30%. Famous for their amazing wings and beer, the Hanger Pub and Grill has multiple locations throughout Western Mass. The Hanger Wings paired with an Amherst Brewing beer is perfect before a game. After work, lunch. Check them out. Get ready to save 30% beginning Friday at 9 a.m. The Shop 30 store at whmp.com. Inflation appears to be cooling, at least it's declining at the supermarket. The August Consumer Affairs Data Assembly Shopping Cart Index for 25 commonly purchased grocery items is $152.70, down 1.2% from July's index. Year-over-year, prices are up 2.1%. The Mozilla Foundation's latest Privacy Not Included report takes car makers to task for invading owners' privacy. The report said all automakers with connected cars collect vast quantities of data about owners, including sexual activity and orientation. While many retailers have been getting consumers ready for fall for a few weeks now with their pumpkin-flavored drinks and treats, Wendy's is just now jumping on the pumpkin bandwagon. The fast food restaurant has launched a new pumpkin spice frosty and pumpkin spice frosty cream cold brew. I'm Mark Huffman. Learn more at ConsumerAffairs.com. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. And welcome back to Talk the Talk. I am very pleased to have the opportunity to meet Pasqualina Azzarella, who is the uh, City Arts Coordinator. She has a, a, a longer title now, I think, but uh, she works with the East Hampton City Arts promoting the, the incredible uh, art scene there in East Hampton. And I think tomorrow something big is happening in East Hampton once again, right, Pasqualina? 
Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me this morning. We are very excited for our first art walk of the fall season uh, tomorrow night, Thursday, September 14th from 5 to 8 p.m. at various locations throughout downtown East Hampton. We have um, more than 15 different activities going on all simultaneously. So we invite people to come and join us at any point along the way. We have a lot going on at Old Town Hall. That's at 43 Main Street. The ECA Gallery is featuring beautiful portraits by Julia Sherrar. Um, City Space is having a pop-up market with many different artists selling their wares. And the Lucy Gallery and Big Red Frame also has a beautiful um, exhibition of paintings by Margaret Lloyd. Um, the Cottage Street Cultural District is going to be bustling with artworks at Mount Tom's. Oxbow Gallery Unbuttoned Presents is uh, a annual, um, sorry, monthly poetry event, um, and we're going to have an open mic there tomorrow night um, that starts at 7 p.m. We encourage everyone to come out for that. And then Valley Art Supplies just opened up a bar within their art supply store. So there's lots to do on Cottage Street. And we've also got a lot going on at Eastworks uh, with Moonlit Sea Prints, 50 Arrow Gallery, Resilient Community Arts, and East Hampton Media, all having their doors open with really wonderful um, art exhibitions and um, music and poetry programming. Our East Hampton Poet Laureate, Car- Carolyn Cushing, is going to be offering a reading in the, in the parking lot at Big E's Supermarket. Um, right downtown um, at Main Street and Union, and she's going to be doing a number of events there. And then, um, so yeah, we've got a lot of poetry, we've got a lot of visual art, and this is all happening in an integrated way throughout the business communities in downtown East Hampton. So we encourage everyone to come out and to also enjoy our shops and our restaurants as well. So Pasqualina, I'd like to know how long has been has this arts walk been going on in East Hampton and how did you put together such an amazing array of participants? Well, art walk has been going on for more than 10 years in East Hampton. It's a real point of measure because when it started, it was a very different little city over here. Um, And there's so much going on in East Hampton. And in terms of how to make such a vibrant event each month, Um, We have so many incredible local venues that share their spaces and um, do so much to support local artists. We have an incredible local and regional arts community, as you both know, with so many people doing so many incredible things. Um, It's something that we all really appreciate here in East Hampton is not just the amazing things people make, but the desire to show it and share it in community. Um, So it, of course, makes a huge difference when people come out to share in this, to experience it, um, to participate. And there's a lot of great music and poetry going on this month in particular um, amongst all of the visual art as well. I have one follow-up question. Is this an economic driver for the city? Absolutely. In fact, I just came from my Cottage Street Cultural District meeting this morning, and we were talking all about it, Um, not just in terms of what we see happening, but 
you know, that's what um, a lot of the work we do um, is motivated by. It's really by bringing art and culture into business communities. It brings people into businesses um, and, and it allows people who might be going shopping or going out to dinner um, to experience art that they might not have seen otherwise. So um, arts and culture has had a tremendous amount to do um, with how East Hampton has evolved and become the city that we know it and love it to be today. So Pasqualina, uh, you say that there's a lot going on this month. Is there anything else going on other than tomorrow night's art walk that yes, people should know about? Yes, there is. There um, is. We're really thrilled to introduce the first ever East Hampton Porch Fest that is going to take place in the New City neighborhood near the Mills District in East Hampton. Save the date for Saturday, September 30th from 1 to 5 p.m. The rain date is Sunday, October 1st from 1 to 5 p.m. We are about to announce the lineup of um, musical acts as well as the porches that they'll be presenting on. Um, Porch Fest is an event that happens throughout the state of Massachusetts and well beyond. Um, this will be East Hampton's first ever Porch Fest. We're really excited about it. We've got 12 different bands on six different porches. It's a really great lineup, really fun for the whole family. And we encourage everyone to visit EastHamptonCityArts.com. We will be announcing the full lineup um, before the end of this week. So follow us on Instagram and Facebook. They're both at East Hampton City Arts. And all the information about tomorrow night's Art Walk and East Hampton Porch Fest can be found in those places. Well, uh, it is just so incredible how East Hampton has become, in a relatively short amount of time, a mecca for culture and the arts. And uh, we're very grateful. And thank you for sharing it with us, Pasqualina Azarello. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me this morning. It's yeah, thanks for coming back on. We really love to hear your voice and know what you're up to and what's happening in East Hampton. We're really very appreciative. And, Thank you so much. Oh, and bye-bye, Pascalina. And when we come back, right after this break, we're going to talk to another really regional giant about culture and music in this region. We'll be right back talking to Glenn Siegel about jazz shares. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. Find local news and local talk for the Valley. It wasn't necessary, and it probably wasn't even appropriate on the one hand. I don't want that to sound like I don't support schools. I have a long history of supporting schools, certainly longer than any one of those city councilors. Where the heart of the Pioneer Valley lives. 1015 and 1400 WHMP News, Information, and the Arts. The Paul Parent Garden Club, every Sunday, 6 to 8 a.m. Brought to you by Weinzick Nursery, locally owned and operated since 1954. Visit Mike, Amity, John, and the rest of the team at Weinzick Nursery, Route 9 in Hadley, and online at winesicknursery.com.
Hi, I'm Jane Wolf, Executive Vice President of Residential Lending, asking you to come on over to the co-op. It just makes sense. And dollars, Jane. I'm Angie McClay, Residential Loan Underwriter, and we want you to know we've extended our mortgage promo, so there's more time to save on your mortgage closing costs. That's right. There's still time to save up to $1,250 when you obtain a pre-approval from GCB. We make it easy to apply online at bestlocalbank.com or at any of our branch locations. Our local, experienced mortgage team is happy to help walk you through the process and answer any questions you may have. So apply online or come see us in person and receive a $750 closing cost credit plus an additional $500 when we pre-approve you. Close by November 30th, be a new first mortgage customer or refinance from another loan provider. Minimum $100,000 loan, subject to change or end without notice. Other conditions apply. See bank for details. Greenfield Cooperative Bank is an equal housing lender. Member FDIC, member DIF. You can count on your friends at the co-op. Jay Burnham here, voice of the Massachusetts Minutemen. Touchdown, Massachusetts! I just wanted to let you know that all of the UMass football action can be heard right here on our new flagship home for Massachusetts football. It's WHMP. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. WHMP. You know, if uh, sometimes I rue the fact that uh, from the time I was a teenager, I, I fell in love with jazz and I sort of um, listened to jazz and attended concerts to the exclusion of a lot of other genres that have great things to offer, truly great music that I missed out on because I was trying to be a snobby intellectual jazz fan. But I am, and that's why I am so lucky over the... Uh, these years to have gotten to know Glenn Siegel, who has been one of the clarion voices in this region, uh, who has celebrated the art form, which is a peculiarly American art form that went international. Um, and in this region, we have so much talent, but we also somehow get access to talent from all over the country. And this region, which of course celebrates CESA, um, community involved sustaining agriculture where you know, might not, not have a garden, but you can get access to fresh fruits and vegetables that come right out of the garden by buying a share. And then when those squash come in to harvest, then you can get your squash. Well, Glenn Siegel uh, took the initiative uh, as an innovator and created something called Jazz Shares. And Glenn, you're here with us today. Talk to us about Jazz Share and talk to us about uh, what it offers for us. Yes, thank you, Buzz. It's great to be here uh, on this side of the microphone. Um, I would like to, b before I get into Pioneer Valley Jazz Shares, I want to uh, contest your characterization of jazz as a snobby intellectual pursuit. For me. Uh, well, for <laughs> you. Uh, but it, that is often the, the, uh, the perception in, in the general public. I hear so many li listeners or would-be listeners saying, oh, I don't understand the music or I'm confused by it. Um, to me, jazz is as emotionally present as any art form. And it covers all the emotions um, from joy to sorrow. Uh, Glenn, let me stop you, because it yeah. also covers this enormous range of a kind of music. It's not one thing. It's, it's, it's an amazing array, and I think perhaps you could comment on that. 
Yes, that's also very true, Bill. Uh, in fact, when I tell people I'm interested in jazz, that can mean many different things to many different people from, you know, it's a hundred plus year old art form. So um, it could be Count Basie and Fletcher Henderson and Duke Ellington. It could be uh, Anthony Braxton and Cecil Taylor. And those are very different sounding musics. Um, so it means a lot of things to a lot of different people. Um, but to me, jazz is not snobby. Uh, it's, it's an emotionally present music that, that people can respond to, even if it is unfamiliar. I mean, I think when people hear things that are, and ideas that are unfamiliar, their initial reaction is often uh, confusion or, or revulsion even. But um, the more you listen to it, the more you sit with it, uh, the more present it becomes and the more rewarding it is. I, okay, you won me over. <laughs> it was actually me who was being snobby that I was talking Well, there about. is a snobbishness and, you know, I get together with my jazz friends and, uh, you know, my wife, who's not a jazz insider, although she's becoming one, um, you know, she zones out because we we nerd out like like people do when when, you know, experts get together and and talk shop. Um, so that can appear as snobby for sure. So when uh, without having to nerd out or be snobby or overly intellectualizing it, what is jazz share? Okay, well, back to your original question. Um, so we formed Jazz Shares uh, 12 years ago, um, basically as a uh, response to me, my frustration not being able to present as much music as I would like. Uh, I worked at UMass for many, many years for the Fine Arts Center, producing the Magic Triangle Jazz Series and the Solos and Duo Series. Um, and that was six shows a year, and I was getting solicited by some of my heroes and some very, very talented musicians to do m more concerts. And so I was racking my brain about how to, how to do that without, you know, all the personal resources that would be necessary to do it. Um, so I hit upon the, the uh, farm share model. Um, I'm a longtime uh, member of Mountain View Farm in... Uh, in East Hampton, and uh, it occurred to me that if we pooled our resources, we could make this happen, make this uh, increase in jazz activity happen. So that's what we did. I, over the summer of 2012, I gathered about 70 friends and musical fellow travelers to our house and pitched the idea. And, you know, the response was very enthusiastic, and we sold, you know, 40 to 50 shares uh, before we even went public, and, uh, and that was it. I think the beautiful thing about it is by selling shares, it's very affordable for the people that buy a share in Jazz Share, and we'll talk about how much that costs and how to do it, uh, how physically to get your hands on a share, but also it means that the musicians are guaranteed to have to get paid. Yeah, that's the thing. I didn't want the anxiety of having to worry about who's going to, how many people were going to show up, and whether how we were going to pay musicians. So this uh, this model ensures that we uh, have guaranteed fees and we can pay rent to venues and so forth. 
And there's a collectivism involved. You're part, by buying, by being a shareholder in jazz shares, you're there with other uh, friends, colleagues, and strangers you might not know, uh, all joining in something which you literally share mm-hmm. an interest in. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the real benefits of jazz shares is the community that's built uh, around this uh, you know common love for music and I must say a lot of shareholders are not jazz aficionados they rarely know who we're presenting Uh, I mean they read about it and you know so forth but uh, going in they don't really know about it but they uh, trust the curatorial process and they uh, love the idea of the collective uh, endeavor so I know you have 20, the curatorial process has resulted in 22 acts that uh, are upcoming, but um, could you give us a taste of who's coming up? Yeah, we start uh, a week from tomorrow, the 21st in uh, Northampton at the Parlor Room with uh, a young tennis saxophonist. I say young, he's 37, uh, so it's all relative. Very young, very young. <laughs> <laughs> Um, his name is Noah Preminger. He's from Connecticut, uh, and he's he's been prolific uh, in you know he's basically produced a, a record a year under his own name uh, for uh, seventeen years. Um, so he's very well known. He plays what we say in the tradition. You know, we you'd hear his music and say, oh, that's jazz. Uh, and he's playing with a quartet with uh, guitar, bass, and drums, really fine sidemen. And um, that kicks us off. So the parlor room is a preferred venue for us. It's uh, intimate, seats about 100, and uh, it's a great listening room. And, uh, and from there, we have 21 others. <laughs> right, but you move the venues around. Right? Yes, that's one of the things that we've always done and love to do is move to various uh, venues throughout uh, Franklin, Hampshire, and uh, Hamden County. So we've, uh, we've actually done concerts in 21 venues uh, over the years, and uh, we're actually adding two new ones. We're going to be at the Drake this year for the first time in Very, Amherst. A wonderful place to do Yeah, a really great uh, listening room. And then we're going to be in Holyoke Media, which we're really excited about, uh, which is a new facility, uh, local cable station, really beautifully equipped and uh, outfitted. And uh, they have a a uh, studio, a black box theater that seats 100, 120. So we're going to do a number of shows there. That's really exciting. And so who are some of the other acts that you've booked? So um, after Noah, we're uh, up at the Shea Theater in Turner's Falls on October 1st, right after the Northampton Jazz Festival. So there's great jazz uh, in Northampton on Friday and Saturday, and then Sunday up in Turner's Falls with a, a really wonderful project led by a saxophonist named Jeff Letterer, who uh, lives in Brooklyn, has a home in Guilford, Vermont, and uh, he's doing a project called Schoenberg on the Beach. So he's taken the early vocal music of Arnold Schoenberg and Anton Weber, Webern, uh, two classic 20th century classical composers, and uh, retrofitted them uh, for vocals and improvisation, uh, so that'll be a septet. So that'll be really exciting with uh, electronics and visuals, so that'll be really exciting. And one other 
uh, upcoming event that I want to highlight. Uh, on October 24th, we'll be in Springfield at the Community Music School with Michelle Rosewoman's uh, New Yoruba Ensemble, which is an 11-piece uh, ensemble with full uh, Afro-Cuban percussion and voice, uh, and that's going to be a really exciting concert. In so a couple of minutes. Let me, let me ask, Glenn Ziegler, do you curate this, this, these presentations, and how do you get so not only so many artists, but so many venues? Yeah, well, there's a lot of venues around, <laughs> and, uh, and the, the curatorial process, um, yeah, I, I do the booking. God, there, you know, it's, I often tell people it's like fishing in a barrel. I mean, the, the number of outstanding jazz musicians who are alive and working today is almost limitless, and I'm still discovering new new artists. And uh, but most of the people uh, who we present have contacted me um, because our art, our fees are somewhat modest. We we don't have the money to really go out and uh, right. And it's so expensive when I when I go to New York and I try to go to a jazz shop and it costs me one hundred and twenty dollars. Yeah. So how much does it cost for a jazz share ticket? And what what do you get when you get it? Yeah, so we, we sell uh, single tickets to the general public. You don't have to be a shareholder to come. Those tickets are $15. Um, shares are $125, and that entitles you to 10 admissions. So that works out to $12.50 per ticket. Uh, we also sell half shares, which are five admissions for $63. And you can get uh, all that uh, information and buy shares at jazzshares.org. It's such a brilliant construct. It not only are people for a very inexpensive ticket price able to see numerous concerts for a hundred and it's nothing, one hundred and twenty-five dollars or sixty-three dollars, but the venue is guaranteed to be su supported and promoted, mm -hmm. and these musicians are going to be paid to come up to this glorious region, which also is just a benefit for them, and they're getting paid. Exactly. Yeah. And musicians love to come here. And I will also say, just parenthetically, as far as the model, um, my my good friend Ido Moore uses our share model to uh, start Secret Planet, which is doing the same thing with world music. It's just so wonderful. How do people find out about Jazz Share? Yeah. Jazzshares.org is the uh, easiest way to do it. And we also have a uh, presence on Facebook and Instagram jazzshares.org. It, uh, it is just the bargain of a lifetime. It's wonderful. The, the ticket to great acts for very little money is right there at your disposal, jazzshares.org. Glenn, thank you so much for conceiving of this. Thank you for what you've been doing for years to celebrate that cultural phenomenon that is jazz. And everybody else, thank you for joining us today on Talk the Talk. The Northampton Community Music Center provides quality, accessible music education to more than a thousand members of the Greater Northampton Hi, this is Jason Trotta, Executive Director of the Northampton Community Music Center. Our scholarship fund helps those with limited means access affordable music instruction and has never turned away a qualifying applicant in or call me at Find out how you can help. Please visit our website at nccmc.net. WHMP Northampton and WRSI HD2 Turner's Falls, WHMP.com, a Northampton Radio Group station. It's 11 o'clock.
For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. A Williamsburg resident will lead the state's new Office of Outdoor Recreation. Paul Janik spent many years as program director for the Department of Conservation and Recreation and will now use those skills to enhance outdoor opportunities in Massachusetts. Janik tells the Gazette he's humbled 